Welcome to Can I Speak to Your Product Manager, the nitty gritty with your favorite PMs. I'm Kyle Kolich, Vice President of Product at Zora. And I'm Lucas Weber, Director of Product Management at Zora. On today's episode, we have Micah Peterson, VP of Product Management at ProcedureFlow. And we're going to start off the show by talking about Micah's recent Never Have I Ever, as well as his best tips and insights for being a successful PM in the ever-evolving business landscape. Thanks for joining us today, Micah. So outside of work and your product management role, you probably get to do things that maybe you initially thought were impossible, and no matter what, they magically get done. So we wanted to get that story uh, from you, those experiences, on the outside of your role and kind of bring them in and then take a look at them from a PM perspective. And this will give us uh, an ability to, to learn a little bit more about you, learn about the PM process, and of course, about the experience you had. Never have I ever. Never have I ever. Never have I ever. So, Micah, tell us a bit about your never have I ever. I had to think a little long and hard about this because I I pretty structured, boring life. My wife and I have seven kids and we have uh, 45 acres on a lake just 20 minutes outside of our city here in St. John, New Brunswick in Canada on the East Coast. And so I was, I don't skydive or I do have a four-wheeler, but it's not, it's pretty normal for around here. But I did think about how during COVID there was food insecurity that was happening. And our, our premier actually told us that we're not producing enough food. Like we import more food than we produce locally. So there was kind of an encouragement there for people to experiment and maybe get into farming a little bit. So we have the land and I'd watched my brother do some experiments with doing some egg laying chickens and also meat king chickens. And that's about a two month turnaround from chick to having meat in your freezer. So I decided I did, I've been doing egg laying chickens for a little while and I decided to try doing meat kings, which was kind of scary because everything I'd heard about it was that they're pretty messy. Like they, they grow four times as fast. They eat four times as much and they, they poop four times as much as well. And so there's kind of like this, you have this two month window right in the middle of your summer where it's like, what have I signed up for? And so we did it and it was really great. We, we've, we do it still. We've gone from originally we did about 30, 40 chickens the first summer and now we do 180 per summer. And so we, wow. we've sold 120 birds so far and we're going to do the last 60 in the first week of September. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that you're you're purchasing chiclets. Yeah. You bring them home. You let them run around your 45 acres. They're really well behaved. They just stay in where the food is and <laughs> they just get bigger. And then two months later, profit, right? Is that right. pretty much how it goes? <laughs> exactly, Lucas. No, not not quite like that. It's quite a technical process. Do you want me to share with you some of the details? I would in case love it. Yeah, it. maybe <laughs> just pick one or two things that, you know, never would I have ever <laughs> imagined. <laughs> and that's what I would say. Yeah, so I think if you think about it in two life segments, they spend about the first three weeks inside a shelter. And so essentially you've taken their mother away from them. Like they don't have a mother because they're sort of manufactured. But, you know, they don't have a mom. They need 37.5 degrees Celsius in the first three days coming out of the, you know, the egg. And if you don't provide that, they die. And that's when they're running around and when they're sleeping and all the complications of where do they fall asleep and how many of them are clustered together when they sleep and all that kind of stuff. And so 
your first project is really how to set up a shelter that's protected from rain and predators and stuff and has a heat lamp and a food and water source and they don't die. So you're just trying to keep them. You're, you're trying to be the mother hen essentially for three weeks. The second segment is you get them outside. They're in the grass. They're eating grass and bugs and things like that. And then you're supplementing their diet with some grain. Still, you got to get a lot of water to them now. And now they're really uh, pooping a lot and you've got to move them around, make sure that they're they're getting where they need to go and you don't leave them in one spot. Still protecting them from predators and trying to do that in a way that it's not eating up more than, because I'm just, I'm doing this full time. So it's like, I have to be able to do this in 20 minutes in the morning. <laughs> and if I can't do that, then it's not going to happen. And so... Yeah. Being as efficient as possible, moving food and water and all these birds around. Let's see. What's like the number one predator? Is it? I would say that everything wants to eat chick- chicken so much that even herbivores would probably try a chicken. <laughs> like I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past a squirrel or a gopher or something to take a bite at them. It's incredible. We got our first batch of chickens done, and then we we kept researching, and then we found this unit. And we, we built that. And so is it, there is this kind of like MVP. It's like, what can you do to get some chickens going without having to stop and build everything before you get started? Yeah. And do it right the first time, right? So you, you are iterating here. You're trying different things. I'm sure there's a lot of learnings in the process. Mm-hmm. It sounds like now you've been doing it for a couple of years. You've learned a ton by doing this. It sounds like you've uh, iterated and improved the process. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say probably now you're going to higher counts of chicks, which means that yeah. you know, your, your product is scaling to some extent, right? That's right. And, and you're, you're much more. So, I mean, talk about, uh, you know, maybe uh, jumping into the, the deep water initially, but I think, how do you feel about it now? Like, obviously you've scaled it up. Do you feel like at this juncture you've you've got it to 90% efficient? Is there some some other things that you could, you know, think you could improve on? Yeah. Or? It's so good now that I was actually able to hire my nephew this summer. And so I've I've been able to, you know, actually push, delegate. And and if we just only did 180 birds, we'd be fine from here on out. And the process is actually really smooth. So anyway, it's a very interesting, you know, place to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is typical of scaling a business too, right? I remember way back when, when I was part of startups, right? There's a the big deal to get to like your first million. Right. Mm-hmm. Then the next to 3 million, then to like 10 million. Right. And like of, of revenue, annual revenue. Right. And so each one of those had a certain like commitment point and a lot of effort to break through that particular line. And it sounds like you're, you're at this level at 180 where, okay, you've, you're at one stage of growth of your <laughs> chick yeah. company. Right. And to, to go to the next level now requires, you know, maybe to some extent small things, right? Like four more houses. But at the same time, now you're also looking at other issues that come with that, that that absolutely take your operation somewhere else. It's interesting. There was a point in procedure flows development where, you know, we had happy customers. We're doing all the right things. We've always been top notch on securities first, reliability, all that stuff. But then we, as we were selling to much larger customers, they needed SOC 2. They needed third-party validation that your practices were correct work with penetration testing and kind of stuff. So it's like that government coming in at the 300 bird mark or whatever, and it's, you have to do due diligence. So we, we had to kind of, while the bus is moving forward, you know, you have to all of a sudden apply an entire SOC 2 program in there and 
So there, there's a lot of parallels you know, in terms of these threshold moments where if you don't do this, you're just never going to be able to get to the scale that you want to get to. And then yeah. as a product manager, figuring out, man, no customer that existing customer that we have is going to care about SOC 2, you know, really, like they've already taken the risk. So it's like that those are hard. It's hard to like work on features or work on things that don't immediately benefit the user, but you have to do it to exist as a company. And yeah. that 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 comes up a lot more, you know, a lot more often than you would like it to. Um, and where you're just working on core things to grow into the enterprise and the the users are like, are you guys doing anything? <laughs> it's just like, nah. <laughs> and, I, and I like the, the journey you kind of went through. I like that when you started off with just get a few chickens live and then you had to keep like iterating and, and figuring out what worked and how to, I'm sure you had some failure rates of some of those initial chicks, but then finally yeah. you got better understanding and you start getting more innovation of what, you know, can make it easier with, like you said, that triangle house that kind of stopped the, the predator. So it's a constant innovation, which I think is a good way to segment into our segment two, which is innovation therapy and other wild tales. So this is the kind of getting a little more nitty gritty of the day-to-day stuff for the product manager and what's happening in the world of PM. So I guess what's top of mind for you right now? Yeah, so we're a play on knowledge management currently. It's it's evolving, the space is evolving, but what we the big thing that we did was take what's normally written text paragraph information in standard operating procedure documents used to be like not that long ago printed binders you know for like call centers or operational centers and that got put into often sharepoint or knowledge bases but it's still this text heavy format we turn it into small hyperlink flowcharts but to put that in better context it's basically the operationalization of flowcharts, which hasn't been done till now, until us. And so we actually have a driving first, a navigating first experience versus an editing first experience like you would have in Visio or Lucidchart. And so what people are doing is they're going in and actually driving through these flows to do their job in real time. And that's fairly novel, like it, uh, nobody's really doing that. And so it's kind of half of the problem is consumability of complex process information. And the other half of it is ownership and collaborating with an entire operational team, different departments like training, quality assurance, the operational team leads, the tr- uh, you know the, the people that actually do the job themselves and the managers and stuff, and l- allowing them to have a say so that when processes are changing, they can update them, make suggestions and in, in the interplay of all of that. And so so that's that's kind of the space that we play in. And so the core values for us that we've established from the beginning and just tried to stay true to all the way along is making it simple. Because what we're doing is taking complexity that's in a written format and like parsing it out so that it's like really simple, really easy to follow. And that translates through our product and the way we design the features and the building, the capturing of the information to the using it to the reporting. The second thing is democratization of knowledge, or I like to call it ownership. So it's basically like, are the people using it? Are they able to provide feedback and own? Can they own it and be a part of it versus having process pushed down on them? And then the last thing is just being customer obsessed, which I think every startup and every PM strive to do is, you know, serve their customers as best as possible. And, and so we may make a decision that doesn't seem right for one customer, but it's actually 
99% correct for the rest of the customers. And so customer obsessed doesn't always mean just dance around and build whatever people want. It means you make hard decisions that affect everybody and move everyone towards a vision that you have for keeping things simple and democratization of knowledge. Let's maybe go through each one in turn. So the simplicity aspect makes sense because we're, we're talking about, as I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's somebody in a call center going through a certain a flow, right? They have somebody live online and you know they're, they're calling in for a particular issue or maybe they just need to be stepped through a particular sales process, whatever it might be, right? Yeah. And, and so the idea is it is very much real time. It can't be, you know, 10 pages of text that the person needs to read, right? Nobody's going to, one, read that, two, listen to it on the phone. So it's got to be quick. You've also got to be able to kind of cover the different branch points, right? If the person on the the phone says one thing or the other, so that the person knows where to go next. And obviously those things have to make sense. So there's lots of branching there. And and keeping that short and simple and accurate is is critical to success and having that that person be able to solve the, the problem. And I think have a confidence. I mean, I would imagine that somebody like that is taking, you know, hundreds of calls per day, right? And so yeah. it just it just needs to needs to work. So I think that's the simplicity aspect of it. Yeah. Okay. In terms of the confidence, one example would be like a health insurance company and there's a special authorization for a drug and the person's waiting for approval and they keep calling in and they're like, Am I approved it? Am I approved it? And the agent doesn't have the confidence with the paper documentation to say you know, uh, you need to wait 14 more days or, you know, you you haven't waited the appropriate amount of time or working on it or whatever. So if you have just black and white flows that you can go through, that's like, you know, check this in the system. Has it been this long? No. And you need to tell them they need to wait this many more days. The ability to deliver confidence in your answer because it's black and white and it's logical versus reading through paragraphs of text and, and not really feeling confident and then putting them on hold, calling internally, annoying the special group and all the problems that that flow from that. And you make a good process for not only the the end user that's going through it, but the one who's actually taking the call. And I'm sure they don't really like to be, you know, dragging things out and, you know, getting harassed. They they want to feel confident that they can, okay, this is what's going on. This is where your status is. The customer feels happy. They're not screaming at them. That almost creates like a a, a dual, a dual, you know, supporting framework that everyone kind of has a good experience from it. That's right. You'd be surprised how many businesses just leave that ambiguity at the point where it's most important, where you're actually talking to the customer. That's where the most ambiguity lies. And they think that they have their policies tight at a high level. But when you get down into the standard operating procedures, they leave everything quite loose. And so it's like whatever you memorized in training or, you know, whatever your team lead said last Thursday or like it's it's very, very loose. And so there's a lot of problems that stem from that. And I did a video recently on LinkedIn just talking, I quit my childhood bank and and just made this point that like at the most critical points of a customer's journey with your company is where we often fail them the hardest. And it is And it is exactly at this level of the company hasn't explicitly said what decision that they want to be communicated to the customer. They're just unwilling to take that that last mile. And, and the decision diamond in that says, I mean, make them wait 14 days, you know, like it, it, you have to make a decision. Yeah. Sometimes clarity around that just really helps get everything uh, solidified. I think this is where you're saying that your, your product focuses on getting that feedback from 
the the actual folks that go through the flow, right, from management in terms of reporting and, and being able to understand what what's working, what's not. Is 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 that kind of what you guys focus on there and and make that easy for for folks to give feedback? Yeah, our heart from day one has been we believe in subject matter experts. But there are these people that stick around and they have the best quality and average handle time and the best customer satisfaction scores. And so we take those people and we ask them explicitly sort of there's a some of our customers term it like prove you're a pro and they'll have them go in and either find breakage points in the flows and correct them or put in their best practices. I say it like this. I ask the question for here and I get better results because I don't have to do all these things if I know this piece of information here. And so you're really enticing or encouraging these best people to put in their, the way that they do it. What else, what else could a business ask for? Do you know what I mean? Like to get yeah. from your best people what they're doing. Have it validated. There's an approval process and a publishing model there, but have it validated with the right people, the legal team, whatever, but that those go in and actually get put into practice. And then the the pride that comes with having your name in the change history, the audit trail with the side-by-side comparison of what the process was before, what it is after, who put the suggestion in, who approved it, when, that all comes together to create the ownership Without any gamification, we we had gamification oh. really early on our roadmap and we thought, do we need to do leaderboards and like all this stuff? And, you know, maybe there's still something there, but we found a lot of that stuff was cheesy in practice or it can be dangerous with a knowledge base to game, like people will game the system and corrupt the knowledge base. But if you just actually have ownership and put people's names on things, there's a pride there that and, and people will then participate in it. And you have to just oppose this against paragraphs of text and knowledge base, emails going out with big, big, big paragraphs and like nobody cares and nobody's reading it and nobody's using it. So why would you bother correcting it if it's not being actioned on a day-to-day basis? And so there's a lot of apathy, a lot of tiredness around a traditional text-based knowledge base where ours is actually consumable. People are using it to their job. We see it. We see people participating and clicking. Then you participate with the ownership it, it's very vibrant. It's really fun. And one of my joys to this day, we just had a team update for, we call in the know for our monthly team updates. And some one of our customer for life people showed one of our home screens for our customers. And they, they create these like 1995 intranet, like home pages. You remember the bulletin board background and mm-hmm. you put like the sticky note, the digital sticky notes and stuff. And it's like, it's, it's Collins day, you know, there's cake in the kitchen in October, we're going to do this Halloween thing, you know, whatever. And you see just the fun and the vibrancy of that, those quick edits and updates and the ownership of the team. It results in, there's like gifts and like all kinds of really fun meme stuff going on in there. And so it's fun to see, you know, people knowledge repository come to life when you make it consumable and, and democratize it. Yeah. You make it very organic too, because you kind of get that That's natural right. feel from, from the, your SMEs and you get the, them seeing their, their, their feedback actually being impacted. I think probably one of the prob- problems with some of the feedback loops is that you say something and it feels like you just throw it down a, you know, you know, black hole, black hole. dark t- tunnel never happens. But when you start saying something and you see it evolve the way the product works, I mean, they, they kind of empower the user like, oh, wow, I made a difference. I'm actually making my life easier because it's something I wanted the product to do. And now it's happening and I can actually see it making my, my life easier, making other people easier. It kind of gives them that empowerment approach for it. When you said customer obsessed, 
And I thought mm-hmm. you were going to go a little di- different direction, but what are some of like the hard no's you, you had to say to a customer where it didn't feel, you know, kind of didn't feel like customer ob- obsessed, but it actually <laughs> ended up being better for the customer because you said the way you direct. Yeah, I have a couple of great examples on that. I My favorite one, which we still get asked to this day, is can you build more features around printing? We built a standard operating procedure tool that's in the cloud. It's always up to date. People are making process changes all the time. It has reporting capability. Build all of this collaboration into it to make it operational. And like, what the heck are you trying to do? Trying to print it? You know what I mean, and there's legitimate use cases. So sometimes people actually just want to do a screen grab so they could put it into like a PowerPoint or you know, there's there's yeah. vehicles for that kind of stuff. And so as a product manager, you have to like you have to like calm down. Like go into every call just like with an open mind and be like, what is that exactly that you're trying to do? And then, oh, mm-hmm. I see. And then sometimes you can, uh, there's workarounds, like there's a Chrome extension that will take a screenshot of the whole flow and what have you. But on the whole, the philosophy of printing, when you really boil it down a lot of times, it's like, this is counter to what is good for your business. And as a product manager, when I have the choice between building new reporting functionality or something that helps the mappers make the maps faster or, you know, like we might use ChatGPT, for instance, to help explore making auto making maps, right? Like take this paragraph uh, SOP and turn it into a flowchart. I'm going to invest in that stuff all day and I'm going to just ignore printing for as long as possible. And it's like, does it align with our strategic vision for the product? Is it helpful to all of our customers or is it really just, you know, just people sort of living in the past and are you going to cater to that or are you going to look to the future? Another long, kind of a long ago example was we had at a certain point cloud got traction and it's kind of now it's like, oh, it's a no brainer, right? But if you remember back, people had a lot of concerns about security and they had a lot of, we had to build an offline backup feature, which is one of the ways that we overcame having to do on-prem. I had a very thorough conversation with their engineering team and because I came from a company that had sold CDs and you know, version 5.6.1 and patches and tech support and quality assurance, all that, you know, servers in a room with all the different versions. And every time you made a feature change, did it work across all the different versions and everything? And he goes to me, Michael, we're not doing that. And I was like, well, I was like, why? You know, and he's like, we're not doing it. And he said, if we do that, here's the cost. We're going to have to have more quality assurance people a whole quality assurance program, all the servers and everything to support that. We're going to have lots more customer support because, and I knew this from experience. That was my first job at university. And it's like, you're going to have to support all these patching. So now my development team is going to be building patches for version 3.8 and we're on six now. All of this stuff, right? He's like, we're going to have one version. And every time we make a change, everybody's going to get that change. And, I, and so he, you know, converted me over to the cost, you know, of doing on-prem versus cloud. And sure enough, you know, we kept getting requests. Can you have an on-prem version? We won't buy it unless it's on-prem. And we were just unmovable on that because we knew long-term, everybody's going to the cloud. This is best. And so that was, we probably lost some deals. We probably, you know, made it harder for ourselves early on, but long-term, it was the right thing to do. It's like, no, you make the decision on their behalf. Think it through and simplify. It may be unpopular choices, but they do win out in the long long-term but you do have to kind of stay the course with the decision you made. On the topic of innovation, you did mention ChatGPT being used to to do the the flows. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw something controversial out there. Are you finding anybody or or your product considering 
actually using chat GPT to, to ro roll through the flows, to be actually the, the folks that, that execute the flow against the, the caller. There's part of what you're asking that question is maybe new thinking for me, but of the part, the other half of it, that is stuff that we are thinking about. We are making inroads in what we call power shapes, the ability to look at what we have mapped, you know, what the customer has mapped and say, look, there's all these steps and they click on these buttons in this system. They go to this tap field, build this thing out, get some information, come back, a decision gets made, then do something else with it. And so a lot of interplay between probing questions, gathering information, tackling systems, clicking around. And so we've made inroads. This was before ChatGPT, but you know, we're on this journey towards providing simple automations where we, we make four subflow clicks, 50 steps turn into one click, you know? And so a seamless integration between the systems that they use on a day-to-day -day basis with the staying in the flow of the process and with the goal of just taking away mundane, repetitive things that they have to do. And so you don't need ChatGPT for that. You know, you have this as-is map that you've created. People are executing it, and it's really about just logically and sensibly, maybe using the reporting data, but maybe just using your own common sense, saying, this is ridiculous. We need to collapse this in. And we've actually had customers call us and say, we mapped everything out. We can't believe how crazy our process steps are. We want to simplify. Can you help us do that? And so that's kind of where the journey started. So automation is partly that. It's partly using common sense to look at your as-is process and say what could be simplified or automated. So there is that kind of efficiency gain that comes and happens. But in order to take another leap in AI looking at what you have as your eyes as flows. You do need metadata about what the arrows mean and what does the text inside of a shape mean and what do they mean to each other in relationship in the close proximity, but also as you go deeper, how are things deeper connected to the things above? And so yeah. you're going to, you know, in, the, in the near term, you're going to see some excitement around the word guessing game that ChatGPT is with LLM and what can you do with it. And then you're going to see this secondary thing where people, there's some disappointment that sets in and people go, mm, how is there, what is our information sitting in? How is it connected? How is it related? What do those relationships mean? And, and then you can do very sophisticated levels of automation and stuff. Micah, I'm going to switch us to our last segment, which is PM Power Moves. Power. Powering up. Power Moves. So we're going to shift gears a bit and, and just dive into something very tactical or things that you're working with. Is there a story that you can share with us here from your experience where you had to go tactical and, and solve something? Maybe, you know, bring in a new process, bring in a new tool to really solve some quandary that, that, that you guys were facing within your company. I started on the journey, obviously, just using your gut and you don't have a lot of customers and you're feeling your way through and you're making what you think are pretty smart decisions early on to establish the product and meet the need of the customers. But very quickly, you evolve into multiple customers and they start all asking for different things or sometimes the same thing. And so I built out an Excel sheet early on and it was pretty simple. I had on the front of it, it was effort. <laughs> How long is this going to take to build and getting a sense of that with engineering? Because that influences really everything else. Yep. What is the feature? What is the value to market one, market two, market three? So it could be for us, it was small call centers, medium call centers, large call centers, and then a more general enterprise use case that doesn't involve the call center at all. 
And so I have those all side by side because I really want to see if we built this feature, they love it, but these other groups don't care about it. Or does everybody care? And that's a strong signal, right? Is there some kind of a blocker for an industry that we're trying to go after, a market segment that we're trying to go after? Is there, if we build this feature, does it unblock something that's like absolutely critical? An example is offline backup. We do have 24-7 call centers. And if we don't do an on-prem version for them, are they going to use it if we have to do a database maintenance or something? And so that ended up being something really critical that we we had to do. And only call centers cared about it. Other groups didn't care about it. And so um, those are some of the difficult decisions you have to make. And then does it, if we build this feature, does it unblock something as a new market? Does it open up a new opportunity, new monies? And, and so can we, you know, kill, I have a friend instead of saying, kill multiple birds with one stone, he says, can we, feed multiple birds with one scone. That Excel sheet helped for a long time. Like it helped up to a certain number of markets and a certain number of customers. But then as the team started to grow, we started having a lot more influences. There's channel and partner integrations. And so you can ignore those for a certain amount of time or maybe you shouldn't. Part of your strategy is how do we get other people to sell our software? And if we have this integration, if we're in this marketplace, and so you start prioritizing features based on unlocking channels really quickly. And that's like a whole new paradigm, right? Like you've got to bring into your view. There is the expansion into the enterprise and how much of a you know priority. You, you have the, the Paul Graham YC, you know, build for the niche, build for the niche, and then expand. You know, a lot of, like few people love you versus a lot of people are ho-hum about you. And so you're trying to do this niche thing but then you're also, you've got your eye to the future and saying, you know, if we build this, it opens up more enterprise expansion. Um, you have to think about your internal customers. So the admin group who's doing the billing and the customer service group that wants to know if somebody's about to churn, what signals can they get out of the software? So you're, then you're into API and you know, all that kind of stuff. And the engineering team might want to take some saw sharpening time, you know, to upgrade their tooling or libraries. And so it's like, that you're like, ah, shoot, that's going to take time. And, you know, and so you're, as you expand your horizon on all the inputs that are coming at product management, of which there's a ton, I use product board now, and that gives me the ability to, to add weights and scores. It's stuff that you sort of internally know in your gut because you're talking to customers and, and all of that, but you have to be able to communicate it back up. And then at a certain point, there's a sanity check where you're like, am I plugged in enough? Like, Am I seeing all the email requests and their implementation team's requests as they talk to new customers? And and so this it gives you a sanity check to say, am I factoring everything in? And then being able to filter it across different markets that you're trying to you're trying to open up. It's a big change to go from an Excel sheet to something like product board. And it takes time to invest and build it in a way that you want to represent it and then to bring everybody onto it in terms of communication and feature management. And, and I think I like that product board being a very good visual too, because you, you, you can see yeah. that you can help kind of bring other people aboard. And part of being, you know, PM is, PM is being able to get like consensus, get people excited about it, get people to start, right. you know, what, what do we prioritize? Which leads us to our last segment of the day, which is ship it or skip it. What do you want to do? Let's do it. No, no, maybe. Yes. So we're going to use the product board, but we're going to do more rapid. You can't do the weighing and the scaling. You're going to have to kind of think of it quickly. Um, but the idea is, will you, will you ship it? Will you bring this product to market? 
you'd be the PM you're ready for it, or would you just skip it and and bury sure. it and never 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 touch it? So the first one, taking from your you know your your knowledge of the chickens and 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 that industry, what about lab grown chicken meat? Ship it or skip it? Skip it. Skip it. Go back to the ones with heads. Very good. All right. All right. I'm going to go with the fact that you have a large family with seven children. And so the next two are going to be geared to the family people. Disposal clothes. Disposal clothes for children. Why wash your okay. clothes when you can throw them away and it's also water soluble to good for the environment? Ship it or skip it? Ship it. A hundred percent. Really? Okay. I, oh, yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's cost effective, I... Go through a lot of clothing. Well, well, you know, you go to Walmart or something, and you buy this really nice T-shirt for your kid. Five days, that thing is just um, a toast. And you see the like they're by the trampoline; they just rip their stuff. (laughs) It's on the ground, and like I would do that in a heartbeat. Yeah. The only problem is when it rains. I think the clothes start to break down. That's the only. That's the only drawback. Well, some innovation there, Kyle. We'll let you work on that. (laughs) Now, I I also have two kids. I've noticed that you know, getting them to learn to crawl. What about the baby mop? Take advantage of their growth of crawling and cleaning your floors at the same time. Baby mop. Ship it or skip it. So the so the clothing is like a mop and they just crawl around. You put the it floor. you put the outfit on the baby and it has like a mop like pr- product and as they walk or as they crawl and rub their bodies, they're shining your floor. This might be controversial, but I would say skip it. Skip it. Having had seven kids and knowing what's on our floor. It seems like a good idea, but I, it's pretty, it's pretty gross. I think in the end game, and it wouldn't, I think it would happen pretty fast. It would be something that, you know, you might get in trouble with the, the government might be taking your kids or something. So awesome. got it. Makes sense. I'm okay with that. Maybe okay with that. the disposable clothes already work as a mop. So you're, you're kind of there. There you go. Nobody has multiple. Know. Yeah. There's something hey. there, something there. And I, I did watch There's an idea for a listener. <laughs> I did watch your video on the on the banks. I had actually a very similar experience. Sure. But would you uh, ship or skip it? Banks sending birthday cards back to their customers. Ship it, of course. I missed. I figured I you would. I figured that was that was a layup. Bring back, bring back the like, personalized touch of the bank. <laughs> when I made the video, I was like, "Does anybody even know who Garfield is?" But I mean, he's made a few reboots. But yeah, Garfield notice cards, hundred percent. Good. Very good. Very good. All right. We talked about simplicity and not adding too many features. So I'm going to throw this out there. This, this is probably not very controversial, but in your product, would you add more pop-ups? They're fun. You know, they're alerts. They're, they're, they're out there. You've got to interact with them. What's, what could go wrong? We could use more of them, right? I would say skip it. <laughs> we built some pop-ups into our software and it's on the, it's on the line in terms of some people love it. And but I the reason I hate it as a product manager is because people hide information and you you don't know that it's there until you click on the pop up. And so anytime you're hiding information, it becomes quite problematic from a consumption perspective. So I to this day, I'm just like, make the right choice there. And there was times where we thought about actually taking functionality out, which is very daunting. If if there's a caution for PMs out there, it's. Be really careful about what you put in your product because once you put it in, it's really hard to take it out. And Very good you know, point. Make sure that you're not going to regret the decision that you make. Yeah. Easy to ship, hard to back out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. All right, Mike, I think that's that's all we have for the ship it or skip it. We wanted to thank you very much for joining us today. 
And we look forward to hearing from you and seeing if you've made that step to 300 chicks or are you staying <laughs> with a comfortable 180? <laughs> we're, doing, we're actually switching to pigs next year. So, <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, then we'll definitely want to find out how that goes for you. Awesome. Well, appreciate you joining us today. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I thought that was a, a great conversation. I liked that process where we was talking to a customer and that's when the, most of these other you know, processes break down, but that's where like the, the rubber hits the road. And when they find out you know, what's the best way for that agent to navigate that, that relationship is, is key. And if you forget that, everything becomes hard and the agent's upset and the caller's upset. And so that, you know, how they focused, how he focused on you know, his product on that interaction really helped drive his successful use of his product. I also like the fact that he kind of leveraged the SMEs that they're there, kind of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a community of users to kind of help improve the product, get, get their feedback, you know, quickly realize what's going on. I thought that was, that's always, you know, nice to have. Sometimes you, you know, get feedback from customers, it just kind of falls out. So it's good to get that reinforcement of that. And I like, I like the, the, the saying no. I, I think that was always a tough one because when he said customer obsessed and he says, but I got to say no was his first thing. I was like, really? That's the first thing you're going to say? <laughs> but it didn't make sense. Like, you know, the, the story about the, the, the print, you know, it's like, you know, I know they want print. It, it probably will give them like some happiness. But if I focus on that, I don't focus on the, the future. I don't focus on some bigger initiatives, the reporting things, some of the things I could really improve the product, improve that customer. And they'll probably forget about print in a few years. So saying no to that, also restrict some of that and say no, so you can give that best experience and flow for that customer, which I think is great. What do you think, Lucas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. Actually, there's a, a couple of principles that I, I think I, I find every day, one of which is, again, just going back to the shapes and colors, right? These are not critical things that will add mm-hmm. value to a business. And yet frequently, if there's confusion or anything like that, those are the things that people focus on, right? I mean, how many times have I fought over formatting of a document or or whatever it is? <laughs> Just yeah. like, literally, is is that the value of the, the, that we're working on here? No. So I think by standardizing it and removing that out of the conversation, it actually forces customers to really focus on the on the flow and the procedure and the business that they need to do. So I think that that's always great. And then the other part is, you know, I do find that there's a lot of things that are easy to do from an engineering coding perspective in software. And then it really behooves us to ask whether it is the right thing, even if it's easy, right? Because it could be a distraction. So I like that prioritization. The other thing that, that I really liked is he was focusing his prioritization of requests already by market, by effort, et cetera. It's pretty standard stuff. But then, you know, as additional dimensions to, to doing decisions came in, I, in my mind, saw that you could have various perspectives on those dimensions, right? So if you look at all the different markets, you could put in the weights. And then if somebody's saying, look, you're not focusing on my market enough, let's just say that it's a particular manager for that market, right? You could then say, okay, but well, here's how I look at all the markets. You know, is your market more important than others, right? And it's Mm -hmm. an interesting cut through those weights to say, look, can we all align that the markets are about yeah. yay important, maybe by you know revenue or potential, or whatever it is, right? And, and so people can then kind of agree that yeah, that that's right. And obviously, exceptions happen, but there's a baseline for that. And what I really liked is that that scoring could be rationalized because you could look at the different right. dimensions, show people a particular perspective, or cut across a dimension, right, and say, look, don't you agree that we should look at markets this way? Don't you think that we should look at channels in a, in a particular way, right? And that gives you a baseline. Then you can have a, a subsequent discussion. I think we've had somebody else come on and talk about it, like, okay, but then there's, you know, in a particular quarter, you may want to focus on certain things like. Tech- 
technical debt more than other things, right? Depending on, on how things go. So it's another great tool in, in the PM tool set to, to really decide priorities. So love, love that conversation. That's, that's what I got out of it. Yeah. It's, it's always that manageable ball, it's like that lump of clay, you get a different perspective of how you adjust it at the end of the day. It's always kind of evolving, isn't it? I and mean, even with the other prioritization framework, you're right, quarter inputs or customer demand or, or something kind of molds it a different way as well. But having that framework is a good starting point. Yes, yes, exactly. Especially if you can make it visible and have people align to it and have visibility. Mm. I think it, it really reduces a lot of noise, aligns everybody in the organization around it. And I feel that people know what's going on to our, our in to know and understand how the decisions were made. Well, this wraps up our episode with Micah Peterson. And be sure to hit the subscribe button and come join us for our next episode. Thank you so much for joining us.